Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a global council podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the UK's Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill and a very specific issue within that, which is the issue of third-party litigation. I'm delighted that today I'm going to be joined by Seema Kennedy. Seema is the Chief Executive of Fair Civil Justice, and she's also a Senior Advisor to Global Council. Prior to these roles, Seema was the Parliamentary Private Secretary, known as the PPS, to Prime Minister Theresa May. And she also served in government in both the Health and Social Care Department and the Home Office. So she brings a wealth of experience to today's discussion. So Seema, thank you very much for joining me today. You've been very active on what is known as the DMCC bill and this issue around litigation. So could you just give listeners who are less familiar with this particular issue within the bill, which captures many other things, just an overview of the what, what we're talking about when, we're, when we go into detail around third-party litigation funding, but also why does it matter to the tech sector? Well, hi, Conan, and thank you for inviting me onto the podcast today. So third-party litigation funding, what is it? Um, what role does it play in society? And why Why is it relevant to the DMCC bill and the tech sector? There's quite a lot to unpick there. But I'll start with what is third-party litigation funding? So this is where you've got a party which is not involved in a piece of litigation. So it's not the claimant or the defendant. So it's a third-party And these are often private equity or hedge funds, and they finance a legal case. We all know that taking a case to law can be very expensive. So they invest in a case, and in return for that, they have a share of either the damages, if a judge awards damages, or settlement if a case settles. So just to be clear, it doesn't include commercial loans, legal insurance, or government-backed legal aid. These providers' forms of financing don't invest in litigation for a share of the payout. They're different instruments. The reason that we at Fair Civil Justice are interested in this um, asset class and why it's been relevant to that particular piece of legislation is that it's currently self-regulated. So it's there's a voluntary code of conduct, and this was set up about 15 years ago. And that, at that time, the the industry was very small, just like less than £10 million. Now it's well over £2.2 billion in the UK. And globally, we estimate it to be about £13 billion and growing at about 9% a year. The reason that, that there has been focus on this third-party litigation funding in the DMCC bill is, as you know, that we have to have, when, when issues are brought under a piece of legislation, they have to sort of be in the title. So at the moment, a lot of litigation funding funds competition cases. And as we know, it's the Digital Markets Competition and Consumer Bill. So that's why the issue has been brought under a spotlight in that particular bill. And the the sort of importance to the tech sector is that there was a change in the law around 10 years ago that meant that you could bring very large cases on behalf of a a deemed class of claimants. So, and this again is very technical, but I think it's worth explaining. You can either join a group piece of litigation under what's called the opt-in system. So you will have seen adverts or heard them on the radio 
Have you bought a certain sort of car? Have you, you know, been subject to a data breach? And then as a claimant, you make an active decision to opt into a case. The other sort are opt out. So somebody will bring a case on behalf of a presumed class of claimants. And they will say that everybody who bought a certain product or were, you know, customers of a certain business suffered this loss. I will bring, you know, I as lead claimant will bring the case. And if you don't want to be part of it, you have to make an active decision to opt out. And because tech has penetrated every single part of our lives and really much more over the last 15 years, we all have smartphones in our pockets. We all use search engines. And there's a relatively small number of these large tech players who have, you know, are seen to have very deep pockets. Increasingly, there has been these sort of cases brought on behalf of millions of UK citizens. There's now about 350 million people. Well, we know that that's, you know, well over five times the UK population. And they are involved in these large cases. And the advantage for the claimants and the funders bringing this is because if you're bringing a claimant on behalf of everybody in the UK that has a certain sort of smartphone or uses a certain search engine, you can claim for large amounts of money. So we do see household names in the tech sector being targeted in these sort of cases. And these cases are always funded by third party litigation funders. I guess if it includes issues like data breaches, Seema, I suspect that can lead to quite frequent examples of what you're just describing here. But you mentioned there, Seema, that it's become more, or you alluded to it, become more of an issue over the last decade in the UK. Can you just, why is that exactly? Is there law change? The law change is the one that I was just talking about. So this was under the Consumer Rights Act of 2015, and that was where we are it was this change to opt out was allowed. So we've had opt out cases in the United States for many years and they can be for any cause of action. So product liability, personal injury, et cetera, all the all these sort of things. But we, we haven't had those. And when, when the opt out system was brought in, in under English law, it was decided that it should only be under competition law. But what we see is there's quite a low certification level and so claims are brought against tech companies for what they would say is an abuse of dominant position or some other breach of competition law, but really they're, they're something else. And this has all happened since that Consumer Rights Act of 2015. And just as as this change happened, that meant that many more law firms from either English law firms pivoted towards it or American law firms set up camp here. And the money has followed it. So that's how we've seen this explosion in the assets under management from just a few million 15 years ago to, as I've said, like over two billion that we know of at the moment. It's difficult to monitor it because, as I said, it's a self-regulating industry. OK, so we've we've got some of the commercial context there, some of the commercial imperatives of why we are seeing legal firms moving into this territory and why they have over the last decade. You've given us some of the legislative context there with the the law that was passed nearly a decade ago now, the Consumer Rights Act. But what about this Packer judgment, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly? Yes, yes. So, what, so what, what is this and how has that interacted with the Consumer Rights Act that you just referred to? Has that caused a sort of an increase or, or more limitations on how these cases are being proceeded? 
Yeah, so that's, again, I mean, I don't want to bore your listeners with too much legalese and um, get very technical, but this was a competition case. It was in the UK Supreme Court last summer and PACAR is part of DAF. So it was a competition case in the trucking industry. And the ruling was that litigation funders were providing claims management services and therefore they were subject to some regulations called the damage-based agreements regulations that claims management companies operate under. So they were, and this limited the amount of damages that the person funding a case could get if they fell within the ambit of those regulations. And the funders have been vocally rejecting that their returns can only be a multiple of their investment and not a percentage of the compensation awarded. And then in the wake of the judgment, the funders were saying, oh, cases will collapse, consumers will be left in the lurch, consumers could be responsible for legal costs. Now, this hasn't actually happened. And there was a case certified against Sony and the funding agreement underpinning its post-PACAR. So essentially, the PACAR judgment reduces funders' flexibility, but it doesn't mean that the business model is unviable. And I think what we can see is the fact that the claimant law firms and the litigation funders are vehemently fighting to reverse the PACAR decision. That's very revealing. But what we at Festival Justice are calling for is just more accountability and more transparency in the sector and a review of a sector which has exploded so much in the last 10, 15 years. Okay, so let's turn to the DMCC bill, which I think people who listen to this podcast more regularly will be familiar with some of the provisions that relate to things like digital competition, where you have measures that will be targeted at so-called gatekeeper platforms, whether that's marketplaces, search engines, app stores. They might also be familiar with some of the provisions within the bill about the negotiating position of publishers vis-a-vis Google News or the sharing of news stories on, on Meta and the ongoing animosity between certain players in either side of the industry divide there about how they can negotiate fair terms, both for the publishers, but also for the tech platforms. But one issue they probably aren't familiar with is is the one that you're talking about today. So how has this legal context that we talked about, we've got the Packer judgment, we had this growth in third party litigation funding in the UK over the last decade, and, and it is impacting on the tech sector. But why is this in the DMCC? You said, yes, it's a competition bill, so hence it's part of it. But but what exactly is the government amendment and what could the consequences of that be? Yeah, There are some people in the tech sector who are very, very aware of this because if you're in the legal department, you're really impacted. And there's some people that literally this is all, they spend all their time doing this. But there's, look, there's a lot going on in this bill. And the area that I've been focusing on definitely hasn't necessarily been top of mind. The reason I think I alluded to this at the at the beginning of our conversation was because of the government felt that it needed to reverse PACAR. Um, and what legislative mechanism was it going to use? Well, we they knew that there was this bill going through with the with the um, dealt with these competition issues. So 
it covers competition issues, including the Competition Appeals Tribunal. And that's one of the key areas where it's the only place really where opt-out class actions are permitted. So that's the vehicle that they've used. And um, then there's also scope for follow-on cases where this is where you have regulatory decisions and then a civil action will follow it on behalf of consumers. So the classic example would be diesel emissions. And of course, there have been amendments in the Lords to enshrine this right to private action in the bill. So I think what we would say is there should be absolutely be ways to take companies to court. You know, consumers need protection, but private litigation should be the last port of call. There's a lot of other steps you can go to before then, and it should definitely be behind regulatory enforcement. The government has amended the bill to reverse the Packard judgment for cases before the CAT. So that's returning us to the original position, but still prohibiting litigation funding agreements where returns are a percentage of the compensation in all other courts. Um, But I think what's more concerning is that there have been other amendments which were tabled to expand litigation in the civil justice system to reverse Packard in all courts in England and Wales and to introduce a private right of action to sue tech companies following CMA rulings. So data privacy and false advertising cases, things like that. So they, I think they were, and also a very worrying one is about exemplary punitive damages, and that's what they have in the US. And this is something that we feel really needs to be resisted. It's an intriguing one there, because I think the way that you've just described it then, if, if they're so the government amendment, I guess, is, is one issue that's sort of moving ahead. So people on the line should certainly be anticipating that that's the way the, the direction of travel. These other amendments are potentially going to be much more complex. And whether they get the support could actually have quite wide ramifications, particularly if they're linked to some of the CMA's decisions, as, as you said. Yeah. Um, so I suspect, as you, as, as you noted earlier, a lot of the legal departments in tech companies are going to be quite uh, nervous about some of that, those provisions. But it, you also mentioned in the midst of that, SEMA, about diesel, there was a reference there. I assume that's is that towards Dieselgate, mm-hmm. but but so interesting to understand. I know we're a tech podcast, but interesting to understand what other sectors of the economy are actually being impacted by by this issue, but also would be impacted should some of the more ambitious reforms in those amendments come through in the DMCC bill. I think that's a very good point because I'd say that this sort of predatory litigation and this very opaque funding model is not just affecting tech. While the leading cases like Lloyd and Google, Merricks and MasterCard, um, or against all the big tech companies are the ones you might see at the front page of the newspapers, actually all, all sectors and lots of different sizes of companies are affected, whether that's in the supply chain or just because funders know that there's money to be made out of uh, suing smaller businesses. I think when we talk about this sort of elevated litigation risk, what comes to mind are obviously automotive, but then pharma, financial services, telcos, you know, there was ca- cases proceeding through in all those sectors. And really, it's anybody who's consumer facing, handles a lot of data, innovative sort of businesses, which are precisely those that we want to be encouraging. Right. So there's, sounds like there's a 
a quite wide ramifications there across the economy potentially. And interesting to hear you mention uh, telecoms there as well, as I as I know there'll be a lot of interest there, particularly constant consumer issues in and around the sector. So to hear those playing out in the courts will be clearly something to to along. There's a there is a big case going against a couple of them at the moment. And it's it is really a serious issue and it has sort of crept up on policymakers. I think there is they there is an impetus on you know, there's a pressure on them and I completely understand this. And of course it's very important to preserve access to justice for consumers to have fair redress mechanisms. But what we would say is that the returns that the funders see, the opaque nature of their industry isn't providing the right outcomes for consumers. Okay, well, we'll uh, we'll see how this plays out and we'll be tracking this issue and many other issues within the confines of the DMCC bill. And as you alluded to before, Seema, we may return to this 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 bill more broadly and see where, where the amendments have got to, particularly if we see ping pong between the House of Commons and the House of Lords um, later in the year. If anyone who's listened to today's episode is keen to continue this conversation with SEMA or others within the GC team, you can find all of our details in the podcast notes, or you can look on Global Council's website, which is www.global-council.com. Thanks for listening, and hopefully you join for the episode next week. Bye-bye.